I can think of no other topic that might strike fear in the heart of many coming back after lunch than to talk about the word eternity and how long I get to talk about the word eternity with all of that food in your belly. But it is a good study and I'm thankful for the opportunity uh, to be assigned it and for the opportunity to study it. So why should we study a word that just means forever? And it seems like at first glance that this is one of those studies where I could say eternity. What does it mean? It means forever. Thank you for coming to my talk. And we could be done. Uh, in fact, what the way I will approach this is that it's part word study, part apologetics presentation, and part eschatology study. And so that gives me three uh, times the amount of chance to uh, get really nervous about messing it up. But I see it uh, from the beginning looking something like this. This is a neat little box. And so the word eternity seems very simple. And then as we start to study that little box and we look into it, uh, we find ourselves overwhelmed by what this little word might mean over the past thousand to two thousand years of people who have commented on it. And so I would like to break it down into four sections this afternoon. Uh, the word Ionios, a word study. Ionios, the challenges to the traditional view, which I hold and, and I will be talking about this afternoon. And then responding to the challenges, both to those that are hermeneutical and to those that are more emotionally based and not necessarily based on a scripture themselves. So let's begin with a word study of Ionios. Ionios is used 71 times in the King James New Testament and surprise, surprise, the vast majority of the times we translate it into the English eternal or everlasting. They are the same word in Greek. Now there are a handful of times it translates into something else in the King James and it really is just talking about all the way back before the world began this eternity past or uh, eternity future being forever. Now Ionios, which is eternal and everlasting, is an adjective. And it does mean exactly that, that there's, it's without beginning or end, that which always has been and always will be. But that's, that doesn't describe you and me, does it? So you and I had a beginning, so what does it mean for us if it doesn't mean beginning or end? Well, then we use it to apply that it means without end. So yes, we had a beginning, but we will not have an end. So we can fall under that word eternal uh, in that context. The word is associated with several different nouns, but as you can see from this pie chart, overwhelmingly in the New Testament, it's associated with life, eternal life, everlasting life. I'm not asking for you to read all of those or know what they say uh, if they're hard to read, but just as a visual, the New Testament is really focused on the idea of everlasting life. Now, three times it uses the word everlasting fire. That's the little red pie piece right there. And every other time it's just used once. And it could be uh, everlasting spirit or eternal redemption, eternal covenant, everlasting inheritance. And it's all talking about these things kind of one by one by one by one by one. But the point I'm trying to make in its, its usage is it's an overwhelmingly positive word. 
that 91% of the time that it's used, it's describing something that we're looking forward to. Now, uh, I have a little both category because of the use of the word judgment. Judgment to us is a positive thing. We look forward to the day of judgment because we can boldly come before the throne of grace. So it's positive for some, but it's negative for others who are not prepared. So that's why it gets its own category. Uh, and then there are the negative uses, which are 9% of its use in the New Testament. So why is Ionios used? And I guess this is just my conjecture. I wasn't there when it was written. But based on all of its uses, uh, I think we could say it is the intangible opposite of a temporal realm. Now that's some fancy speak to say everything around us doesn't last forever. And so this word is meant to describe this future that we, we have really no uh, tangible thing here because everything is always wasting away. So what will we do? We'll make up a word that talks about this next age where it's everlasting. And so we experience loss on this side. The Bible shows an everlasting inheritance, something that can't be taken away. We struggle with sin on this side. The Bible offers us eternal salvation. It can't be taken away. We see death. We experience death on this side. The Bible promises everlasting life. And so, yes, that 91% of Ionios encourages us to be faithful because it will get better. And the majority of my sermon is about that other 9%. But before we get into that 9%, we focus on uh, maybe the, the eternal punishment, eternal fire, etc. If we could just pause to consider that the Bible's overall message is it gets better. And that's part of the good news is everlasting life. That's why in John 3.16, that's how the most famous... Uh, verse in the Bible in some circles ends. We will not perish but have everlasting life. So, with that in mind, uh, what about this other 9%? This Ionios fire, Ionios punishment, Ionios damnation, Ionios destruction. Uh, so yeah, it's talking about something that's everlasting and eternal, but this is where people start to have differences of views. Uh, outside of, of the Church of Christ, but also inside what we might call the, the different groups in the Restoration Movement. And even within our own brotherhood, there are those that may hold this position. And you may be the type of person that is on the fence about what position that you want to take. So it, it's around us that people hold different views when it comes to this. First, let's consider the Scriptures themselves. There's six of them. The font may be a little small, but I'll read quickly. Matthew 18.8. If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life lame or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into the everlasting fire. Matthew 25.41. Then he will say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. 25 verse 46, and these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Mark 3.29, but he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit uh, never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal damnation. So those were all the words of Jesus, and now there's two from the epistles. 2 Thessalonians 1.9, these shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. 
And Jude 1.7, As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in similar manner to these have given themselves over to sexual morality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. So I hope that this first section, a word study, gives us an idea that the word happens a lot in the New Testament and it's commonly used. And it's easy to only see it one way, meaning forever. But what happens when people start challenging that view that maybe there's times whenever it doesn't last forever. And so when we have uh, these words and people say, well, maybe it doesn't mean what we think it means, uh, what do we say? I'd like to begin with just a, another definition, and this is my words, the traditional view of what I believe about these words. It's very redundant, but you have to stay with me. The eternal reward of those who are not faithful is a never-ending experience away from the presence of the Lord. It never ends. The soul who experiences this will experience it for eternity. Yeah, it sounds like you're just saying the same thing over and over again, but because we're trying to very clearly state that uh, if you believe this view, the people, once they're in hell, are experiencing that for an unlimited duration of time. And yet there are challenges to this traditional view. We'll consider the hermeneutical challenge as well as an emotional challenge. So let me try to summarize them for you briefly. The hermeneutical challenge might say something like, the word ionios is part of a larger discussion on the study of the afterlife, that's eschatology, and this larger discussion shows that it depends on the context or the conditions of the verse. And therefore, eternal punishment and eternal life are not necessarily saying the same thing. So we'll spend more time unpacking that. The emotional challenge might sound something like this. If eternal means without end, and if eternal describes punishment, does that mean that a loving God will punish people without end? Such a God seems unfair, unjust, cruel, petty, or unloving. I imagine you've probably heard that one more than you've heard the hermeneutical argument. Uh, that said, the hermeneutical argument will be the one that's more difficult to answer because the emotional argument, as it's in the words, relies on the emotions and not necessarily scriptures. Now, the three views of eternal punishment, and the interesting thing is as soon as I finished this slide, uh, I saw a book that showed the four views of eternal punishment, so I'm actually outdated. There's four views, but uh, you can ask me about that in the Q&A if you really want to know the fourth one. Traditional, conditional, and universal. And I call the second one conditional because that's the word that these advocates use for themselves. The word I was familiar with was annihilationism. Maybe if you've studied this, you're familiar with that word too. Michael mentioned it briefly in his talk this morning. Annihilationism. That's the word we use. But as I read uh, some sources that came from this view, they preferred conditional. So I'm going to kind of use both of those vocabulary terms to describe them. The traditional view holds, as I've tried to mention already, that there's an unending duration of punishment. It is conscious. You will know that you're there. You will know that you're in pain. There will uh, be no end to it. It's continuous. While the conditional view sees it as terminal, that there is a brief amount of time that you are in this experience. It is conscious. You'll know you're there. And it really depends on the levels of punishment that you are uh, guilty of and, and are going to be given. 
but ultimately the spirit will be annihilated. It will cease to exist. It is as though a drop of water is being dropped into a fire and it's gone nevermore. It's commonly called annihilationism in our uh, brotherhood, or at least in the people that I've talked with. Now here's a quote. Again, that's kind of small, but I'll read it to you. It says, Annihilationism is a popular belief even among Christians, and it has been growing more popular in recent years. Those who hold the position of annihilationism believe that the wicked dead are annihilated or destroyed. They lose all consciousness forever. Annihilationists deny that there is an eternal place of torment known as hell. When the Bible speaks of hell, it means the annihilation of the individual, not everlasting punishment. The wicked are reduced to nothing or non-existence. There is no such thing as the eternal existence and punishment for the wicked. So this is equally as redundant as mine was. Both sides are, are just going, uh, are making overtures about talking about it's either lasting forever or no, it's, it's just total, it's complete, it's annihilation. There is no amount of time that's there. Now there is a third view about uh, universalism, but I did this as a visual aid just to say we're not really going into this one in this presentation, but it is there and it's more common than you might think. A lot of times we think, oh, we know that the Bible says that uh, not everybody's going to be saved, and so we just kind of put that view aside, and yet there are a lot of groups out there that preach universalism and that they will have scriptures that advocate that view. So maybe another time a presentation could be about that at a later study. Now, Edward Fudge is the source that I used. It was recommended to me uh, about an advocate for the conditional or the annihilation view. He is part, or rather was part, he's passed away. Uh, he was part of the restoration movement, and so he's familiar with our, I guess, methods of interpretation and, and why we advocate for uh, the Bible. And he wrote a book called The Fire That Consumes. And it's kind of a textbook. Uh, it's not one that's really casually read, but it's, it's got everything in it about that view. And I'd like to read the overview. It says, an examination of the final punishment of the unredeemed from throughout the whole Bible, non-biblical literature of Second Temple Judaism, etc., as well as the historical development of the doctrine of final punishments through the apostolic fathers, anti-Nicene, Nicene, post-Nicene fathers, medieval, later theologians, reformers, and later theologians. So this would be the text form of when all of the little boxes started falling all over my mind. Because in my mind, as someone who maybe is more ignorant about this than I should have been, was the idea that this was a pretty simple study. Eternity means forever. And yet what I came to realize is that before me was a lot of years of people having a lot of debate over this issue. And his book was one that really is, uh, I don't know if it's the book, but it's one of the books that within restoration groups who try to practice New Testament Christianity. Uh, it's the one that has unleashed the annihilationism perspective. Now here's a quote from his book. He says, This punishment can encompass a broad spectrum of degrees of conscious suffering based on various degrees of guilt. Meaning that you could be in hell for just a moment if you were a little sinner or if you were a great sinner, you might be there for a time experiencing that punishment and then you'll get annihilated. Uh, that third line, but the essence of this punishment is the total and everlasting dissolution and extinction of the persons punished. And he cites Matthew 10, 28 and 2 Thessalonians 1, 9. And I'd just like to say this about 
Mr. Fudge. This is not uh, an emotional, quickly thought up, pandering type of book where he, he didn't do any study. He did study. And, and I think we should acknowledge that, that, that this wasn't someone who just decided, I, I don't like hell, and so I'll write a book real quick about it. He researched and, and, and defends his position and if this was the only book you ever read, you might agree with him whenever you get done with it. So be careful if you add this book to your library. Don't let it be the only book you have in your library on hell because it's a well-written book. I'm going to add a little banner, the Conditionalism Annihilationalism banner, to the next few slides because now I'm going to try to unpack that view. And just to make sure we're on the same page, I'll have that banner there saying, I'm not advocating this. This is what Mr. Fudge and others are advocating. So one of the questions that's asked is, does the concept of eternal or everlasting refer to a duration or to the effect of the punishment? Duration versus effect is a big uh, contentious issue. So duration meaning unending period, effect meaning total or complete, you won't exist anymore. And so both of these uh, points of view when looking at 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 9, for example, these shall be punished with, is it an unending period of destruction or is it a total and complete destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power? And so what Mr. Fudge and, and those like him advocate is that there are so many examples in the Bible where uh, it's not talking about duration, but it's talking about effect. And so we do have the ability to uh, apply that same method of interpretation to scriptures like this. For example, eternal judgment. That's talking about uh, not a judgment that goes on for forever, but rather it's a final, complete judgment. The same with redemption, the same with salvation. These are all from the book of Hebrews that he cites. But all of these, are, it's complete and it's total. And therefore, uh, it's the same with this destruction. It's complete and total and it's not an unending period. He then follows it up with a question like this. Does the concept of eternal or everlasting always mean forever? And he cites that there's really two ways to look at it. There's everlasting which is forever and then there's everlasting which is not forever. God is forever. Eternal life is forever. But the mountains in Habakkuk that use the word everlasting, the everlasting ordinances, the eternal priesthood, Solomon's temple, eternal punishment, these are all finite. And really what is meant is they last beyond the vision of the primary audience. And so uh, as they're talking to those people, it's everlasting. And that just means it's going beyond you, going beyond your age, into the next age to come. The problem is, and, and I'm not really getting out of it yet, but I just want to pause here to say, notice that eternal life and eternal punishment don't have a scripture next to them because they're being subjectively put in those two different positions based on how one might interpret it. So he's doing what I'm doing and is just, uh, he interprets it this way, so he's going to put eternal punishment there, whereas I wouldn't. So we've got to find a way to resolve that difference, and we will in just a little bit. Matthew 10, 28 says, uh, Whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. What you hear in the, in the ear, preach on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. The, that's not the devil. That's God. 
we, and we agree, and everybody agrees on that, that this isn't talking about the devil. This is talking about the Lord and that we should have a healthy respect and fear for the power of God. And what Mr. Fudge and those who uh, believe in this position use this verse for is to say that when punishment is made, the soul is destroyed. This is a literal translation, or we should literally interpret it as the soul is destroyed and is no more. So, uh, in conclusion, <clears throat> from this view, if Ionios should be interpreted in the context of each verse, and if forever doesn't always mean forever, and if God is just, now notice we didn't really talk about that, but that's kind of how it's put in here, is we'll talk about context differences, but then in his, his book and, and some of these works, then it's just casually thrown in that a just God would never do this. If God is just, then everlasting destruction equals total and complete annihilation. So, with that in mind, the challenge to the traditional view will respond to the hermeneutical challenge and then to the emotional challenge as well. And I thought I'd save this one till the very end of the presentation, but alas, I will not, because I think it's the clearest verse to show that eternal really does mean forever as far as the length of time. And if we can start with this one, then maybe it's best to build off of that foundation. Matthew 25, 46 says, uh, These will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And we read that and we think, okay, yeah, they, maybe they're different because one says everlasting and one says eternal. But you and I now know that it's the same word, Ionios. And so one goes to Ionios punishment, one goes to Ionios life. What can that mean? I'd like to just add these quotes for your consideration. A person can exist without being punished, but a person cannot be punished without existing. Something must exist to be punished. And so if the punishment is everlasting, then something's got to be there to endure it. And uh, therefore, it has to mean uh, duration. Secondly, if the wicked are only tormented for an age, then the righteous will only experience life in heaven for an age. If the believers will be in heaven forever, unbelievers will be in hell forever. And the reason this is the simplest scripture is that it's got the two... Uh, destinations juxtaposed in the same verse and they really do have to offer the same conclusion or else the verse doesn't make sense. 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 6 these shall be punished or rather this is verse 9 these shall be punished with Ionios destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power and so again there's that debate is it about uh, duration or is it about totality now the easy to read version which is on a second grade reading level, I think does a really good job of helping us understand what this means. It says, they will be punished with a destruction that never ends, period. They will not be allowed to be with the Lord, but will be kept away from His great power, period. And what they do, and, and yes, I understand the, the, the periods and the additions, etc. It's not maybe the most literal, but what it's helping us see in this point is there are additional things happening to the Ionios destruction. There's banishment. There's banishment that's happening there. It's grammatically redundant to add anything on to everlasting destruction if it means annihilation. Why do we need further clarification if it just means poof, you're gone? But if there's something to 
this eternal punishment, and that is banishment, then that further explanation shows us why this consequence is so dire. And it's a big deal because not only are you being punished, but you're being punished away from the presence of the Lord and from His great power. So, a final a few things that are misunderstood in this view, and then I'll try to address the emotional uh, view for just a bit. So number one, I, I think the conditional annihilation view uh, does not understand the nature of hell and its destruction. And I say that as humbly as, as one can because I don't have any experience with the nature of hell and knowing what it's like, but I'm just suggesting that from the scriptures there, there are things that can be known. And I feel like this view is not representing the nature of hell uh, properly. The lake of fire is both physical and spiritual. It's not, phys it's not simply a physical realm where a drop of water would fall in and sizzle and, and uh, is no more. Acts 24 verse 15 talks about how the righteous and the unrighteous receive a resurrection. And so when, when someone says, how could a body be uh, perpetually destroyed, it makes more sense to say it's destroyed and it's gone. Um, we could respond by saying that if God is able to raise the dead, then certainly God can give the body that is able to last everlastingly, everlastingly to life or everlastingly to destruction. And uh, Revelation chapter 14 verse 11 and 20 verse 13 are other scriptures uh, that I put in there just for reference that there is a body that is prepared for eternity and for all that fate. Number two, we've already talked about Matthew 25, 46, but there's a misunderstanding of what eternity is. And the annihilation conditional view um, really wants it to, to mean whatever happens in that particular verse. And uh, they want it to mean an age instead of it being this duration of time. It has to be this specific uh, next age and then poof, you're gone. However, it's clear in the New Testament that Ionios does refer to eternal length all the times that it's using it in everlasting life. The vast majority of the times that it's used, we understand it naturally to mean that it lasts forever. In Revelation chapter 10, uh, or 20 verse 10, speaking about Satan and the beast and the false prophet, it says that they would be tormented day and night forever and ever. And in the very next couple of verses, it talks about uh, the lost who are also cast into the lake of fire. So it's natural to assume that if they are, the devil is in the lake of fire forever and ever, then those that would follow him there would be there for that amount of time as well. Number three, God's justice is often used as an example about why uh, an eternal hell just simply cannot be. How would it be fair for God to take a person who's lived 70, 80, 90, 100 years and then punish them for an eternity? Now that question uh, fails in a couple of ways. First, I'd li like to suggest this. We put people in jail for their life based off of something they did in one second. And you pull the trigger and end someone's life, and then you end up in jail serving multiple life sentences. We have no problem with saying that uh, the, the crime and its punishment have to somehow equate. We get that. And yet we say that that's not fair for God to give a longer uh, time of punishment to a short amount of crime. But 
I would also suggest this from Psalm chapter 51, verse 4. When King David committed the sin of adultery and murder, uh, and that was with Bathsheba and against Uriah, he still says in Psalm 51, verse 4, against you I have sinned. Because he had sinned against a holy God. Yes, he had sinned against those people, and there was consequences in this life for that. But he also had the eternal consequence against an eternal God. And in Romans 11, verse 22, which I'll bring up one more time in the study, behold the severity and the goodness of God. So think about how far that severity goes and how far that goodness goes. God's justice and His mercy, His righteousness, uh, His wrath, all of these things just keep on going to both ends. And so we can't limit God's justice the way that it is in this view. Number four, uh, people in this view will often say we would be saddened by the knowledge that our friends, if somebody's in hell that I love and I would know that they're there, wouldn't I be saddened knowing that they're there for eternity versus if they were annihilated and gone? And subjectively, then yes, I would say Yes, we don't have to deny that there's sadness to that. There are a couple of things that we're going to consider. Number one, even if we had forgot everything, we would still serve a God who knows. And God will know everyone who goes to hell. God created everyone who goes to hell. And God didn't want any of them to go to hell. So He would know. Jesus would know. The Holy Spirit would know. And so sometimes we don't take into account our Creator's feelings and the creation that He loved that He's sending away. Revelation 21 verse 4, however, says that God will wipe away all tears. And I will tell you, I don't understand how that will work. I just know it will happen and I trust Him. In the same way that when I was a kid, in the same way that my children, there are many times when they are little and they come and they throw themselves into our arms with things that they don't understand but they trust mom and dad. Same way that we, whenever I was a child, trusted my mom and dad and threw myself into their arms. We trust that God will wipe away all tears. Finally, there's an unfairness factor to it. It's gone. I'll try, I'll keep going. Um, there's an unfairness factor to it. And people will say it's simply unfair uh, that it lasts this long or that it happens to these people. And I'd like to share Deuteronomy chapter 25, or 32 verse 51 and Luke chapter 16 verse 24. In both of these places was somebody who endured the punishment of God. In Deuteronomy 32, Moses was not allowed to get into the promised land. In Luke 16, the rich man was uh, not allowed to cross over, nor was he allowed for his uh, Lazarus to go back and talk to those who were still on this side of eternity. And in both of those accounts, the person themselves did not question God's fairness. They accepted it. And yet we are the ones who aren't involved in it who often question God's fairness on their behalf. Now God in the Bible allows His people to lament or to cry out about the fairness of situations. He's not opposed to that. We were talking about that earlier, some of us. The book of Job, the book of Lamentations, and the Minor Prophets, God's people oftentimes cry out. And Moses, the rich man, etc., have opportunity to cry about how unfair it is. They never talk about that. It's always us armchair quarterbacks on their behalf. Okay, here we are in the final point. 
responding to the emotional challenge, which was, if eternal means without end, and if eternal describes punishment, does that mean a loving God will punish people without end? Such a God seems unfair, unjust, cruel, petty, and unloving. As I read uh, parts of Mr. Fudge's works, I found myself emotionally connecting with some of the struggles that he had. Some of the struggles that everyone has. And, and no doubt you've spoken with others who've had these same struggles of, of wrapping their mind about around the eternity of hell. What I found, though, was that Mr. Fudge was not only uh, approaching this hermeneutically, but he was motivated by emotions. And in his book, Hell, A Final Word, he talks about a friend he lost at the age of 14 named Davy. And there's a chapter called, Will Davy Be in Hell? And he is grappling with this as a child, or a young person, who is trying to figure out the eternal consequences of a friend. They end up making a movie called Hell and Mr. Fudge, which you could watch for free on YouTube if you want to sit through the ads. And in this film, I just watched the preview. I didn't have time to watch the whole movie. But the preview, it's not framed around the hermeneutical argument at all. It's framed around the emotional argument. It's framed around his interactions with people who have the traditional view and how uh, backwards and closed-minded and cruel they are for him asking these questions and how pious and good he is uh, for standing up to them. It's very small, but in the movie poster, his, it says underneath Hell and Mr. Fudge, a little story about a big lie. And the way it's framed, again, is uh, this emotional plea. And so I believe that we should respond to the emotional plea. And I believe that the majority of the time, whether it be people that we know and love who start to express uh, maybe questions about an eternal hell or anybody in the world, that if we don't address the emotional component, if we only make it about the hermeneutical component, we're going to miss out on opportunities to help people change their mind. Because most of them, I, I believe, are approaching it from an emotional perspective. Jesus said in Matthew 26, 39, He went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, Oh, my Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. I think it's important for us to remember that even our Lord struggled with the will of God. I don't want to say He wanted to disobey it. I don't think that's true at all. But there is a time when He's praying, Is there another way? And so, for any of you, and myself included, if you ever struggle with the eternity of hell, to question, is this the way? Is, we can ask that question. And yes, we need to study it out. Hopefully we answered some of those in this presentation. But by validating the emotion instead of slapping it away, we're reinforcing to them that we do care and that we want them to experience truth with us and that we're not just trying to win the argument. Another part of this, and then I'll move on, is that we are not to be emotional about our view the way that they are about theirs. I'm not tickled about the idea of an eternal hell, nor do I want to rub people's face in it that they're going there for an eternity. This is tragic, and it's awful. So I'm not happy about holding this view. There's a sense of urgency that, that we want people to be saved from hell, and that's exactly what God wants as well. 
Ezekiel 33.11, Say to them, as sure, surely as I live, declares the Sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn! Turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, O house of Israel? And this is repeated again and again in the New Testament. We'll look at one scripture where God's wrath has to come, but He's given us time to turn from it. And Brother Bailey's commentary on Romans chapter 1, God's wrath is not exhibited emotionally. He's not motivated by personal resentment. It's God's necessary response to sin. God cannot reveal a law, attach a penalty, threaten infliction, and then fail to punish. Such a failure would violate His absolute righteousness. You know, we talked about this morning, God is more than love. He is love. He is the essence of love. But He is love and He is righteous. He is love and He is holy. He's multifaceted and He's not just one facet. In the New Testament, uh, we can in, in help encourage people with 2 Peter chapter 3. But beloved, do not forget this one thing with the Lord, that one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is a day. The Lord is not slack concerning His promises. Some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. There's a couple things there I'd like to unpack. First, eternity is a concept beyond time that we use time to quantify, which that kind of blows my mind. Right? We're talking about an age, but we're using a mind that can't understand what that means. And to the Lord, a thousand years is a day, and a day is a thousand years. We will be experiencing something circularly instead of linearly. So talking about how long hell's going to be and how long heaven's going to be is really something is quite abstract for us to do. But again, the assurance that we should give people in the moment is that God does not want people to perish. And whether that turns into a conversation about my grandma who uh, was a Baptist this, or my friend who was this, or, or whatever it may be about turning it into, uh, us redirecting the conversation back to God does not want you to be lost. And anyone who is, they don't want you to come there either. God wants you to be saved. This is how we help people through whenever they're having trouble coping with the eternity and its consequences. Ecclesiastes 3 verse 11, He's made everything beautiful in its time. He has put eternity in their hearts, except that no one can find out the work that God has done from beginning to end. Again, eternity really is beyond us. And we sit there late at night thinking about how long is forever? And what are we going to do in heaven? That's one of those questions that I feel like I'm too old to ask, but I still wonder, like, what am I going to do and for an eternity? I love singing. I love worship. But I don't really like being around people all the time. I, being around God forever sounds wonderful, but do I get alone time? Do I get to... I, I, what if I want to go on a hike? You know, what, what's it going to be like? We just It's beyond us. So we sit there and look at the stars thinking about eternity going, wow, everlasting life. This is part of the gospel that we are giving to people, that Jesus can save us from everlasting punishment and give us everlasting life. And so the final slide I have is Romans chapter 11, verse 22. Behold the goodness and the severity of God on those who fell severity, but towards you goodness if you continue in His goodness, otherwise you will be cut off. 
in this study, we have focused on the severity of God and how eternal it is. But can we focus on how severe His goodness is? In that none of you, and myself included, none of us deserve the goodness. And all of us deserve the severity. And lost in this, does it mean duration or does it mean completion? Lost in that is really the heart of the gospel and that we don't have to experience that because even though we deserve severity, the goodness goes all the way to the other end. Just like a line that never ends. There is severity and there is goodness. And there's not one preacher here. There's not one preacher here who deserves to go to heaven. Every single one of you who I've looked up to my whole life you deserve to go to hell. And whether it was before you were baptized or after you were baptized, all of us have done things that should encourage the severity of God, but behold the severity and goodness. So this is part of uh, the gospel that we get to preach to people is that, yes, there is an eternal consequence, but there's also an eternal reward. And the Bible, over 91% of its usage of the word Ionios, is encouraging you to be faithful. Be faithful, because it's going to get better. Thank you.